Hello there and welcome to the Emotion and Word podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. I am your host Phil Wilcox and I am also the founder of Emotion at Work um, where we are all about enriching lives and reducing harm. Emotion has a wonderful ability to just both make our lives amazing but also get us in a huge amount of trouble as well. Um, and I, I talk about enriching lives and reducing harm because for me the, the work that we do it, it falls into one of those two domains. It's either about working with individuals or teams or companies about what's the what's going on at an emotional level with, within the organisation. So that could be about culture, you know, how does it feel to work for the organisation. That could be about teams in terms of um, whether that be team dynamics or team development or team planning or team structures. How do we, how do we get the most out of uh, the way that people feel and how can we harness emotion to be a force for, for good or an energy to drive performance. Um, but it can also be about emotion in individuals, so emotion within somebody, you know, thinking about how it affects them, how it affects their thinking, how it affects their decision making and the impacts it can have um, on them personally and professionally. Um, also though it's about reducing harm, so um, emotions can, can get us into all sorts of trouble uh, because people can play with our emotions if they ha have intent to deceive us, so that might be about me working with organisations in terms of uh, recruitment or investigations or other interviewing approaches. Um, but it can also be about um, helping um, make sure that when we harness the power of emotion we do that in a really constructive way because any emotion can be harnessed in both a constructive and a, and a destructive way um, and often that leads to a, a conflict within us um, within us personally about what we do and, and I'll come back and tell you more about that because I've got a story to share with you a bit later on uh, in the podcast. So right at the beginning um, an avid listener would have noticed that I opened with Welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition um, and that's new and I've, and I've stolen it from a review that the very kind Owen Ferguson left for this podcast on iTunes um, and his headline was um, a deep dive into the human condition at work uh, and I've been thinking about and looking for a strap line for this podcast for a while and I will thank you very much Mr Owen Ferguson I'll buy you a pint next time I see you for our strap line of a deep dive into the human condition. Um, this podcast is slightly different from all the ones that have gone before it, so um, I wanted to do a, a listener special where we get questions from, from listeners, um, which I then uh, listen to and respond to um, over the course of this podcast. So we've had questions in from five different people, uh, and we'll cover those questions as we go. Um, but yeah, today is going to be mainly, well not mainly, it's going to be all of my voice. Today is going to be you hearing from me in response to questions that have been posed. So I wanted to move straight into that really. So one question came in from Patrick Malarkey and he on Twitter he is at Mentor Malarkey. So that's Mentor as you normally spell it and then M-U-L-L-A-R-K-E-Y. Um, and he said, uh, his question came on, in on LinkedIn, he said, can I ask a personal question that is tenuously linked to identity? What advice would Phil Wilcox have given to himself 10 years ago? So 10 years ago, I was finishing up, um, well actually I didn't know that I suppose at the time, I was working in a, uh, in a local authority um, down near Bristol, South Gloucestershire Council I was working for at the time um, and, and I was doing a whole load of work um, on competency frameworks and I, I thought they were like the best thing ever. So the advice I would give myself um, from 10 years ago is ease off on the competency framework approach. So the, the framework that I created in, in 
consultation with the wider business um, was a suite of eight competencies uh, that had five levels. So there were contraindicators and then indicators at levels one, two, three, and four. Um, and so that meant that each competency had 20 behavioral indicators that sat underneath it. And um, if you then looked at that across the eight competency areas, then that meant for 160 behavioral indicators. And my goodness, was it massive. I was so proud of it. I thought it was the best piece of work I'd ever done. And it was great because we, um, some of the real good things about it was that we integrated it into performance. So it became part of the, the council's approach to their, their PDPR, as they called it, the performance development and personal review. Um, it also became part of recruitment. So we'd use it as a, as a benchmark and standards to recruit against. It also became part of um, development as well. So we linked it into both um, specific development programs, but also we had a, a learning resource center that had a whole host of digital and physical uh, resources and they were linked to the different competency areas. So if you wanted to develop your team working competence, then you could go and find resources that would link into that. So it, it, from one perspective, it was a really strong piece of you know, pan HR and learning and development work integrating um, these competencies in, but, but they were just unwieldy. So my advice to the Phil Wilcox of 10 years ago is focus more on, uh, on principles or on guidelines rather than getting into so much intricate detail about what is and isn't okay in the workplace. Um, because we ended up just yeah, making something massive and worldly. And, and I, I wouldn't have been at this stage, but I remember shortly before I left, I had a conversation with the with one of the line managers in the direct services part of the council. So direct services where you have like um, uh, litter pickers, curb layers, surface dressers, that sort of stuff. Um, and I sat down with him for about 40 minutes and he just, you know, laid it out really clearly to me how inaccessible this was to the vast majority of people um, that were in his part of the organization. And you know, he said it, it was a, it looks like a corporate dream, but in reality, it just doesn't work. And, and that really hit, hit me hard because it was sort of saying, I felt quite a personal attack in that because this was a project that I'd owned across the whole of the, you know, the 10,000 people who worked for Kessel. And I'd owned this project and delivered it across everybody. And then to be told, you know what, this just doesn't work. It doesn't apply. Um, it can't be used in, in this setting. Um, I took quite personally at the time. And I, I look back now and think, yeah, you know what, I didn't need to. Um, there are other ways of doing it and other ways of going about it that I think would have been much more accessible for people, much more um, engaging for, for others as well. It just would have, been, would have done it in a different way. Um, so yeah, I think my advice would, would be ease ease up on the on the kind of telling people exactly what it is they need to do um, and how they need to do it. So linked to, to that, or the way I've linked into that is, is a question that came in from Sarah Taylor on LinkedIn, because um, she was talking also about self. Um, so she says something I'm pondering on. Sorry, I'll try that again. Something I'm pondering on a lot these days is the balance between self-acceptance and self-improvement. When does the desire to change aspects of ourself and our feelings become problematic? So in response to this one, Sarah, I'm going to do a couple of things. So one, I'm going to, to plug the Good Practice podcast. So we, we seem to be sort of podcast buddies and we're, we're, we're um, recommending each other a lot. 
Um, but I was on that recently talking about self-deception. Um, so you might want to go and have a listen to that because I think that there's different aspects of self-deception that sit within it. So you might want to go and have a listen to that. Um, but I think in a more direct answer to your question, which is where does the desire to change aspects of ourself and our feelings become problematic? So I think it can become problematic when we interact with others. So especially if we're looking to change um, uh, change who we are in the context of other people that we work with and, and or know us well. So if we start to do different things or respond in different ways because we want to, to change how that is. So if I think about um, an occasion I had in the past where I spent a long time saying I didn't like somebody. So I spent a long time, you know, privately, um, when you know, I'd be with colleagues, we were in the pub or with, you know, with friends from work, and we talk about an individual in the workplace. And I said I didn't like them, I didn't like their approach or their, their methods or what they did. Um, and then I was forced to work with them quite closely for a period of time. Um, and when I got to understand them a lot better, from spending a lot of time with them working on a particular piece of work that we did. Um, it, it changed my perspective on them. It made me really think about everything that was going on for them, what was happening for them in their part of the business, in, in the world that they worked in. Um, and then what would happen is when I'd be back with those same friends uh, or colleagues and that person, that person would come up in conversation, I would then change how I felt about it because I would then start supporting that individual or defending that individual um, and that became quite problematic because what I was saying A had changed because I was being inconsistent with, with how I've been in the past but also it was inconsistent with kind of the, the, the narrative that we'd all um, created around that individual and this is what happens in, in interaction we often create narratives or create scripts so when we start talking about this then um, these are the things that people say so, for, you know, I, I've noticed that I say you know a lot, and I'm trying to, to catch myself when I do it. So, if I think, if I ask you to think of um, family gatherings or team meetings with people that know each other well, you're when a particular topic comes up, you'll almost, you can almost predict where that conversation is going to go. You can predict the anecdotes that are going to be used, the stories that are going to be shared, the discussions that are going to be had because we, we kind of fall into script mode where we, um, we predetermine what we're going to say. So often in that kind of personal development and personal change, especially if we're looking to um, change aspects of ourselves or our feelings, then that can become problematic in, in the interactions with others. And, and on a different podcast that I've done, I talk about how um, often people, as in the, the second episode with Ben Fletcher when we're talking about purpose, um, I, I talked about how for some individuals it can be quite liberating to move from one organisation to the next. So to leave an organisation and go to a new one and get a promotion. Because that, um, that needing to re, kind of renegotiate or re-evaluate or re, reassess or reassert your thoughts or feelings or views or, or aspects of yourself can be easier when you're moving to a place where people don't know you. So it's easier to let go of those things that you had or those um, things that you said or those things that you did because you can move to a different place and, and reinvent yourself in that way. Um, I also think, though, so that so there's two aspects to my answer, Sarah. So one is I think it can become problematic 
when we're interacting with others. I think it can also become problematic with ourselves because something that is valued in society in general is consistency. Um, it's acting in, in ways that are consistent with how you've acted before. If you said you're going to do this, then you deliver on it. Um, one, of the, one of the key principles of influence is commitment and consistency. Once you get somebody to, to make a commitment, to make a statement, to say this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I think, or this is what I believe, or any of those sorts of things, then um, humans will feel more compelled to act in line with them. So if we've been saying for, um, for a long time, this is what I'm like, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I think, or this is how I feel, um, it can be hard to change that within ourselves, even if we notice it changing. Um, a, a, a potentially a contrived example, but for, for ages my wife's been trying to get me to um, join her in a smoothie, um, kind of replacing a meal a day with a smoothie. It's made up of lots of different types of fruit and then other um, ingredients that are put in to help kind of uh, improve digestion and uh, energy release and those sorts of things. And I've been just avoiding it like the plague for, for quite a while. And then in the past week, um, I've had two and I've really enjoyed it. And as I was making my lunch today, as I record this podcast at three o'clock on an afternoon, um, I find myself thinking, ah, I quite fancy a juice today. And then not making one and having a standard sandwich instead. And I find that interesting is to, the, even though, I, even though I, I knew I was... Um, I fancied having a smoothie. I still chose to not have one and have what I would normally have um, because I was feeling a bit rough and I'm not, as you can probably hear from the recording, I'm quite sort of bummed up. So I decided I wanted some comfort food instead. Um, but actually, thinking about it, if I have got a cold, which I think I have, having um, the antioxidants that go into fruit is much healthier for me than white bread, pickle, cheese and ham and lettuce um, so almost counterintuitively um, I haven't helped myself so in the same way that when we've taken when we've done something for so long and we then try and do something different it can be hard for us to admit to ourselves that that's what we want to do but also it can be hard for others to um, uh, to sort of go along with that and support that as well so I think that there can be a few different problematic bits to it. Um, and I guess I'm tempted, even though you didn't ask me to do it, I'm tempted to tip into, well, what can we do to overcome some of those problems then? So how can we, how can we make that less problematic? Because when we, when, so for example, if I play that, when I was in those interactions, talking about the, the person that I was mentioning earlier on, um, and the, the pressure that I, the psychological pressure that I felt to conform with the with the view that I'd expressed in the past was quite strong, um, and then to deal with the confusion and the challenge and the dissent from other people around um, was also kind of quite difficult to do. So I think there's there's a couple of things we can do. So one of those is we can do it very openly. So we can we can overtly um, talk about what we're doing. So in a slightly different example, I've been working with a client recently on a, uh, on a leadership development program. And one of the things that, I, that I've actively encouraged is for the participants in the program to engage with the, the, their, their immediate peers and, and teams and or supervisors and um, 
talk about the fact that they are going to be um, experimenting, and this is the frame that we've put around it, they're going to be experimenting with doing new things. So they're going to be experimenting with working in different ways, they're going to be experimenting with um, approaching things in a different manner, they'll be experimenting with uh, having conversations in a different way. So we've been very, uh, we've been encouraging the participants to be very overt and giving them strategies to help with that overtness in saying, I'm going to experiment with doing things differently. Um, because it's framed as an experiment and doing something differently, you can also encourage for feedback on that. So you can encourage people to share how it, how it works for them, what do they experience when the participants do something differently. So when they approach a, um, a conversation about a workplace problem in a coaching way, as opposed to a giving a solution way, um, because we're, we're framing it as an experiment, we're finding that, or we're hoping that we're finding, we're hoping that the feedback will be more open and, and more common in, in its occurrence because of the way that we've positioned it. So for that personal change in terms of aspects of ourselves or um, our feelings or something, then we could be overt about it. The other thing we could do is we can be more covert about it if we wanted to. Now, could, you, could you argue this is verging on deception? Maybe. Um, or somewhere on the deception spectrum anyway. Um, so we can be more covert about it and practice it with, in different contexts with different people. So if I think about my example, rather than uh, changing my view on um, this individual in the wider discussion, I could have explored it with um, in more one-to-one -one discussions with people that I knew had a different view to me and think and then experiment with sharing Oh, you know what, for me they're not that, that bad really, or yeah, but, you know, if you think about what's happening for them over there, it can be this, it can be like this or like that. And by exploring it in a more intimate setting with one other person, you can get a gauge or a, or a view for what's, what's the response, how do people, uh, how are your colleagues or how are others responding to the changes that you want them to make. Um, when it comes to thinking about it for yourself, from a self point of view, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of journaling anyway. Um, I actually audio journal rather than written journal. So one of the things I, I do is I talk to myself through a phone, if that makes sense. So I'll go for a walk and I'll do my reflections as I'm walking. I find that I reflect, I find I reflect more effectively when I walk rather than uh, writing things down. Um, and then I go back and listen back to my recordings and then take any notes that I want to take off the back of it. Um, but I want to the, uh, when it comes to doing it from a self point of view, I'd encourage journaling as a way of helping you do that. So deliberately choose to experiment with changing something and then make sure you capture how that, what that experience was like, how did it feel when you did it, what impact, did, if any, did it have, how did it feel afterwards, was you know, how it felt in the lead up, did that, you know, if you were feeling anxious or frustrated or excited, how did that play out through to the execution or the, the um, uh, the implementation of the change that you wanted to make. So we started with something you've been pondering on um, is the balance between self-acceptance and self-improvement, when there's a desire to change aspects of ourselves that things become problematic. Um, so I hope that's um, given you a, a good response, Sarah, or a, a thoughtful response anyway. So having taken a small drink, our next question is from Ross. Uh, Ross Garner, so Ross works at Good Practice, and his question, you can find him on Twitter at Ross Garner GP. Um, and his question comes in response to podcast episode five, I think, 
where um, I talked with George Nightingale about um, identity negotiation and conversation and how um, the how the rituals of conversation can be um, the sorry let me try that again the ritualistic aspects of conversation can be both limiting um, and I think what Ross is getting at with our conversation rituals are useful crutch um, is actually can they be helpful in some ways and, and absolutely they can so one of the risks with one of the downsides I suppose of conversation rituals is that um, you you can miss out on a different conversation so by going through the standard hi how are you yeah i'm good and you yeah I'm well thanks okay and then moving on um by asking a, a completely different question you could get a very different conversation which could potentially be deeper and more enriching so um you might use a question like um what makes a person a good traveling companion as an example um and, and that might be that, uh, that might be a bit hard to slot in as an opener to a conversation so someone said hi and you go what makes a person a good traveling companion um that that might be a bit incongruent to, to start it off there um but asking different questions can really um yeah take the conversation in, in a different way but at the same time if you're say in a rush or you don't really want to talk about um, how, what you're thinking or how you're feeling then those conversation rituals can be a useful crutch because they can allow you to um, transact through a conversation really quickly um, what remaining polite and courteous but also not um, not taken off in a in a different direction so yes I think conversation rituals can be a useful crutch context dependent you know I always talk about how context is everything um, so I, I think that um, using those conversation rituals can be helpful in that way uh, okay so next um, um, we've got two questions from Annette Hill um, and Annette's on Twitter and her handle is at family HR guru uh, and her questions come in response to um, the latest podcast which is where we talk about leadership and vulnerability um, and near enemies of things with uh, Kersha Delegara and Claire Genko Breeze. Um, and that's first question was when the idea of collaboration, sharing stories, and social leadership is very current, is the need to keep this valid and grounded in what is happening now even more acute? So let me try that again. When the idea of collaboration, sharing stories, and social leadership is very current, is the need to keep this valid and grounded in what is happening now even more acute? Um, so, in short, yes, I think it is, um, because there's a risk that, that these things become tasks to be done. And I know this is something that, we, that Claire and Kershaw and I talked about in the podcast, that we see storytelling or we see social leadership um, or we see collaboration as a, as a thing that we should do. Or, or I should do, I need to do my social leadership bit now, so I'll go off and do that. Um, and, and that's not what it's about. It's about um, is now an opportune or an appropriate moment for me to do some of these things. So if we want to make sure that it is um, genuine and authentic, it, I mean, we could we could explore and kind of extrapolate on what genuine or authentic means. But if if we want people to truly collaborate. And share genuine stories. Um, 
and uh, you use that, that social leadership as a way of um, enabling and leading through others, then it has to be grounded in, in what's happening now. Because if it's not, um, for me, it just it really risks undermining the, the validity of what's happening and what's going on. So I then get to thinking, well, how, how do we do that then? What can we do? Um, what can we do to help that? And I'm not sure as I sit here now recording it, so I'm, I'm going to have to think about this some more. In my my reflections for for this podcast, I didn't I didn't go into the so what can we do about it? Um, I just went into to my thinking. If, if anything else comes to me before we finish recording, then I will I'll add that in. Um, so secondly, then from Annette was how do we encourage and value this gradual and incremental way of learning. So again, um, in the podcast we talked about, um, in the podcast with Kirsten and Claire, we talked about the, um, I don't know if it's the preference or the, um, the seeming celebration of epiphany moments about how, how leaders or individuals have, a, uh, have an epiphany and then that, that has a substantial impact on their their, their practice or their approaches or their methods or their, their future and then uh, they use that epiphany moment or individuals use that epiphany moment to continually um, talk about and share as an example of this is what's fundamentally changed me whereas actually um, change can be much more incremental in that way and I found a really interesting piece which I'll put a link to um, in the show notes so it's a chapter from a book around reflection um, and reflexivity. Um, I was also reading a paper by Liam Moore recently about um, the importance of, of, of reflexivity. Um, but it's, it's called Reflection and Reflexivity, What and Why. I'll put a link to it on the, in, in the show notes. And within that, it, it, talk, it uses the example of um, reflection or reflective practice being a... You talk about lots of evidence to say that that is a wholly beneficial and useful thing to do, but it almost implies a staticness um, that you are you're sat still in front of something looking at the reflection. Um, so, you know, is is reflective practice just about sitting down and looking at yourself and thinking, um, or is it more than that? And if you look up sort of a, a dictionary definition for reflexivity, it will talk about. Um, not just looking at cause and effect, but then linking back the effect to the cause and how changing in the cause can change the effect and changing the effect can change the cause. So it's more, much more of a um, dynamic um, dual, dual process. So opposed to it being, as opposed to reflection just being a static looking in the mirror, reflexivity is a constant assessment of what's happening and what's going on and how, things are effect how one thing is affecting another. Um, which I think is a is a really beneficial practice to do, you know, to be thinking about uh, when I did this, it, it, it meant that, that made me feel this, and therefore I want to do this with that or about that. Um, and, and one of the, the habits that I have, especially after interactions with others, is to think very deeply about it. So I'll often, if I think about, say, a workshop I facilitated, I'll break that workshop down into sections or chunks um, and when I go back through my memory of, of that event, I'll think about what happened and how did it go and what did I do and what did I say and what impact do I think that had and how do other people's actions 
support or challenge the impact that I think that had. So if I, you know, I did this and I approached this activity in this way and people got really engaged and I saw these things as the outcomes and um, therefore this is what I want to do with that next time, whether it be replication or change. Um, but it's a, it's a, a real sort of constant habit that I've got myself into. Um, and I think in terms of the question that you asked there, which was how do we encourage and value this gradual and incremental way of learning? I think there's a long way to go to do that. Um, I, I don't think that's a practice that is generally valued. I mean, even if you think about something like um, the performance appraisal, that, that, that doesn't, by its process, it doesn't encourage a gradual and incremental way of learning. What it encourages is for you to think twice a year or once a year, maybe, depending on what it is and what's going on. So I think even the processes and the procedures that we have in place um, hinder the, the hinder the value to that gradual and incremental way of learning. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely more to do. And that's all the questions. So that's all, all five questions that have come in. So thank you to Annette, thank you to Ross, thank you to Patrick, and thank you to Sarah um, for sending your questions in. Uh, I hope my uh, responses have been useful, um, and I'll put links to any research and so on that I've talked about um, into the show notes as well. Oh, I forgot. Um, I said at the start of the podcast I was um, I was going to tell a story that linked to these questions. So if I think about the and it links into different aspects of some of them. So Sarah talked about um, the balance between self-acceptance and self-improvement. Um, and then um, what advice would you give you know, to yourself a number of years ago from Patrick and then from Annette around how do we encourage and value this gradual and incremental way of learning? Um, so I was on holiday recently in the lovely North Yorkshire area. Now, I live in Lincolnshire and Lincolnshire is very flat. North Yorkshire, on the other hand, very hilly. So uh, my children got to experience the joy of riding scooters down hills. Now, you can probably guess where this story is going. So I was sitting at the bottom of one of those hills. Um, my son was coming down and I could see from about halfway down that he was losing control of the scooter. And I called out, be safe. And he said, I am. And I could see that he was losing balance even more. So I said, be safe, um, because I, I was conscious that I didn't want to tell him not to fall over, because I, I thought that, that would even more encourage him to fall over, as opposed to me saying, be safe. Um, and uh, sure enough, as he came down the hill, he fell over and grazed his knee and grazed his chin and um, had plasters and cried and so on and so on. And as I was um, walking him back to, to the accommodation, with cuts and bruises and him limping and so on, it, it got me thinking about why did I choose to a get involved? So did my did my uh, commenting of be safe because that comes with an implication of um, not a not a direct implication but an indirect implication that what you're doing or that you are currently unsafe. So by saying be safe, it comes with an implication of, of what you're currently doing is unsafe. Um, so if I hadn't said anything, would he still have fallen over? And then my second thought then is, why didn't I save him, for want of a better phrase? Because I could have uh, walked up the hill or ran up the hill towards him, 
and I could have stopped the scooter. And I chose not to. That was a that was a conscious choice because I, I wanted him to fall over. Well, that's not true. I didn't want him to fall over. I, I wanted him to learn from that experience. Uh, as he was coming down the hill, I could see him losing his balance. I, uh, and whether I'm saying I did this on reflection or whether I actually did it, I don't know. But I set a situation and thought, this isn't going to be life-threatening. You know, this, this, this fall isn't going to cause a major injury. It's not going to cause him to break. It's unlikely that he'll break a limb. It's certainly not going to cause any, you know, any life-threatening injuries so therefore I'm just going to let this play out and see how to see where it goes because I wanted him to learn the experience of either you know, saving it and him retaining his balance and coming down the hill or um, of him falling and it hurting and then him learning from that as well and I think as I sat back in our accommodation and, and reflected after that on the experience I was thinking yeah if, would I go back and do that again would I go back and, um, and and let him fall over? And, and I think I would. And I can also think of examples where, in the workplace, I've allowed members of my team or, or colleagues to fall over um, because of the learning experiences that, that that's going to give. And and that that goes against some of my values. And, and I said on the I mentioned this podcast a couple of times now, but on the podcast episode with Kershaw and Claire, I said how I, because I care a lot about uh, what happens in the workplace and the, the the way that it affects people's lives, that that caring too much can tip into, or I can have a near enemy of trying to save people or save things and getting too involved. Um, and, and it was a really interesting experience making that choice of not getting involved, not saving him, wondering whether my articulation of be safe had an impact on him falling or not um, but also giving him that, that learning experience that goes with it so um, why am I sharing that story? I think because it's a, it's a dilemma that I face regularly at work and with my children um, and it links into the, the quest, some of the questions that have come in um, for the podcast today. Uh, so I thought it would be useful to share. So thank you very much for, for listening today. Thank you very much for subscribing to the podcast if you do. If you wanted to leave me a review on iTunes, then I'd be exceptionally grateful. Um, and other than that, thank you for listening to this um, special episode. If you liked it, then tell me. If you didn't, then tell me. Um, it'd be really good to know uh, what you think. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.